A number of years ago, a Harvard law professor by the name of Mary Ann Glendon, she published a very influential book called Rights Talk. In that book, she gave a pretty scathing critique of the ways that Americans negotiate, or really more often than not, the ways that we fail to negotiate political conflict. Something, she suggested, has gone wrong in our public life. Our political system doesn't seem to be working, and increasingly, many Americans no longer put any trust in the system and show very little interest in participating in it in any way. Now, why is that? Why, why have our public conversations and political institutions stalled and become so dysfunctional? Why do we seem to be so bad at working through disagreement and conflict? And no doubt there are many answers to that question, but for her part in that book, Marianne Glendon said that one of the main problems is the way in which the language of rights has so come to dominate our moral and political conversations. Not that rights are a bad thing. Throughout her career, she has been one of the strongest and most influential defenders of fundamental civil rights, such as the freedom of religion. So the problem isn't rights per se. The problem is that the language of rights has become the framework that we use to talk about almost everything, from religious freedom to conflicts over abortion, from property laws to laws about the nature of marriage and public expressions of sexual identity. Discourse about rights, Glendon says, has become the principal language that we use in public settings to discuss weighty questions of right and wrong. But time and again, it proves inadequate or leads to a standoff of one right against another. What is more, the more and more that this rights talk has come to dominate our thinking, the less and less we pay attention to things like duty, obligation, responsibility. At least that's what Marianne Glendon argued in her book. And that's all very interesting, of course, but you may be thinking to yourself, why in the world am I going on and on about some book written by some law professor? What does this have to do with Paul's letter to the Romans? Well, actually quite a bit. In the previous session, I began to talk about Paul's distinctive vision for Christian community and how it is that Christians should treat one another in response to the gift of Jesus Christ. In this session, we'll look at how Paul continues to develop this theme in Romans chapter 14. But the very th first thing to notice about this chapter is that Paul here, he's not writing some abstract treatise on the moral life. He's addressing a very specific conflict, a disagreement that seems to have arisen in the church in Rome. And he's trying to explain how Christians should deal with conflict in light of the gospel. And of course, because he's talking to a single community, not to a nation, his concerns and his advice, they're different from that of Marianne Glendon. But as we'll see, there are also parallels. So let's get right to it. What does Paul have to say to these early Christians about the ways in which they deal with conflict? 
and what can we learn from it today? Well, as usual, there's more in this chapter than I can cover in a brief video, but I did want to highlight three basic principles, three basic rules that I see emerging from what Paul says. And rule number one is very simple. Be charitable to each other. There's a saying that's become rather famous among theologians. It gets repeated a lot. It's a saying that's often attributed to St. Augustine, or sometimes to the English pastor Richard Baxter. But most likely, it first originated from the, the writings of a very obscure 17th century German theologian by the name of Rupertus Meldanius. Now, regardless of who first coined it, the saying itself is very instructive. It's often quoted in its Latin form, but the English translation is, unity in matters which are essential, freedom in matters which are debatable, charity in all. And in many ways, that saying echoes what Paul has to say in Romans 14. Although we don't know the precise details of the conflict that was taking place among Christians in Rome, Paul makes it very clear that it involves some kind of disagreement over whether or not Jewish Christians ought to continue to observe kosher and Sabbath laws as an act of obedience to God. And it's pretty clear that Paul thought that this was something that wasn't really essential. It was a matter on which Christians ought to follow their conscience. As he says in verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying that when it comes to matters of religious belief or morality, that Christians can simply choose to believe whatever they want and should just follow their own conscience. And now, that's something that, that we today tend to prize very highly that each person is their own supreme authority, that each person should be free to choose what is true and what is good for themselves. You know, the kind of attitude that says, hey, you do you. But that's not what Paul is advocating here. Elsewhere in his letters, such as in 1 Corinthians, he makes it abundantly clear that on some matters, such as sexual immorality, there are very clear moral boundaries that all Christians must submit to. In other writings, such as his letter to the Galatians, he insists that when it comes to the truth of the gospel, Christians cannot tolerate false teaching and disagreement. So Paul's emphasis on not judging one another and each person following their own conscience, it's not meant to be an endorsement of some kind of laissez-faire, anything-goes attitude. Paul is simply saying that you have to distinguish between things that are essential and non-essential. And when it comes to the non-essential matters, the ones that Scripture gives no hard and fast teaching, then Christians need to learn to be charitable towards one another. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That's Paul's first rule for how Christians should approach conflict with one another. Now, his second rule, which parallels some of what Marianne Glendon has to say, 
is that Christians should not be focused first and foremost on their own freedom to do as they please. In other words, don't insist on your own rights. Now, after emphasizing the fact that Christians need to learn to be charitable to one another, and recognizing that every person must give an account of their own actions to God as the true judge, after that, Paul goes on to say that just because you're free to do something, just because you, you have a right to do it, that doesn't mean you should. Take food, for instance. Now, one of the main things that Christians do with each other is eat. We have meals together. It's a way of living out the unity that we have been given in Christ. But in Rome, this was causing a problem because apparently some of them, most likely Jewish Christians, some of them didn't feel the freedom to eat certain kinds of food. Now, maybe this was because of kosher laws. Or maybe it was because some of the food that was sold in Roman marketplaces had been used in pagan sacrifices. And that these Christians thought by eating it, they were somehow participating in idolatry. And for his part, Paul makes it clear that he doesn't agree with these overly conscientious Christians. I know, he says, and am persuaded that in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean to anyone who thinks it is unclean. In other words, he would agree with those Christians who felt complete freedom to eat any kind of food. And yet, at the same time, he also thought that those who had a conviction otherwise, that they shouldn't go against their own conscience. So his advice to, to those who, like him, feel freedom in this area, his advice is, yes, you're free to eat what you want. It's your right. But don't insist on your own rights if it means doing something that's going to harm the conscience of your fellow Christian and keep you from having a meal together. Do not, as he puts it in verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Now, interestingly, this is a principle that you can see in some of Paul's other letters. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, for instance, Paul, he's talking about how on the basis of God's law, how he has a right to expect some kind of financial compensation from the Corinthians for his labor in preaching the gospel to them and teaching them in the faith. But, he says, I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provisions. And then he goes on further to say, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So, you see, what he's saying is, just because I have freedom in the gospel, and just because I have a right, that's not my primary concern. And it's not the main principle that I carry with me when I encounter conflict with other Christians. Paul is not, nor does he think other Christians, should be primarily concerned with rights talk. Instead, they should be motivated by a higher priority by concern for the salvation of those around them. And that brings me to Paul's third rule, take responsibility for one another. You remember what Marianne Glendon said? She said that the more and more we become obsessed with the language of rights, the less and less attention we tend to give to the language of duty and responsibility. 
Now for Paul, you could say that the opposite is true. Paul is very clear that Christians have been given freedom from sin and guilt and that they don't have to live their lives under the burden of a law. They're free. And yet, when it comes to how they should live with one another, his focus isn't so much on the freedom to which we have a right as it is the responsibility that we owe to one another. In 1 Corinthians, he says that he forgoes his right to financial support because of the responsibility he feels to work for the salvation of others. And then in Romans 14, this chapter, he tells those with a, with a freer conscience, he tells them to forgo their right to eat as they please because of their responsibility to protect the consciences of their fellow Christians. As he says in the very first verse of the next chapter, chapter 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, this was a radically countercultural thing to say to a community of ancient Romans. In Roman culture, it was the weak who were the ones who were forced to submit to the strong. But Paul is reversing that. For Christians, he's saying, it is the strong, the free, they are the ones who have an obligation to bear the weakness of others. They have a duty, a responsibility that should override their own personal freedom and rights. Uh, this went completely against the grain of Roman society and culture. Just as much as it goes against the grain of much of our own society and culture today. Our culture will tell us that when it comes to conflict and disagreement, our first concern should be with protecting and defending our own rights. But Paul says that within the Christian community, we have to learn to forego our own rights as we learn to take responsibility for the souls of others. That is the Christian ethic. That's what it looks like to conform our lives to the good news of the gospel.